Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of the Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry. Folks, welcome to the latest episode of the Real Health Podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. Um, as you know, every now and again, I get rather excited when certain guests come in who I've been really looking forward to chatting to or always wanted to have in on the show. And today is one of those days. I am absolutely delighted to be joined in studio by Donald O'Shea, HSC Clinical Lead on Obesity. Um, you'll have seen Donald in the press over the years. He's like the, 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 the shiny beacon of light for fighting obesity and tackling obesity, both in terms of what he does but also his straight-talking advice about what needs to be done. As a nation, we're facing a obesity crisis. 62% of the population are overweight, over 3 million people. 3 million people in Ireland are overweight. It's getting worse, it's getting bigger, and uh, Donald O'Shea is one of the, the, the beacons of people trying to sort this out on lots of different levels, and as a clinical lead for the HSC especially. Donald, welcome to the Real Health Podcast. No, delighted to be here and delighted you're focusing on you know, what I think is the biggest public health problem we have. Just how bad is it? Because I think sometimes people can, it's it's almost normalised now that being overweight is kind of normal and it's kind of grand. And Yeah, know. I mean, it, it, the evidence is continuing to accumulate. Uh, so overweight and obesity are now clearly linked to over 200 uh, chronic medical conditions. Uh, the strength of that link is either strong or very strong uh, for the majority of those 200 uh, conditions. So, um, and, and you know, people are familiar with the link with diabetes maybe, and uh, but when you mention cancer and you mention stroke and you mention uh, a lot of skin diseases like uh, psoriasis uh, and liver disease, people are surprised. They're still surprised. I mean, I say it to health officials, uh, you know, in the Department of Health, and they go, but it's not really linked to all of those uh, conditions. And, and you're going, well, look, it is, and the evidence is really clear. Wow, 200. Uh, more than, two, 220, I think, in, in, in the latest. Um, and, you know, uh, if you think of uh, the, the reach of those chronic conditions into people's lives in terms of, um, you know, needing to use uh, breathing devices at night if they have sleep apnea uh, on maybe five to ten different tablets the sort of polypharmacy that's going with uh, overweight and obesity um uh, the the personal uh, cost uh, for for people just living with obesity uh, and the fact that they're stigmatized in society they they're judged they're judged by their healthcare professionals they're judged by their family and you know it's it's uh, it's a really tough uh, condition to live with and at the moment what we're doing is like for no other disease, we are treating the complications of obesity. So we're treating the diabetes, we're treating the cancer, we're treating the dementia, and we're not treating the disease. 
And there's no other condition uh, that we do that uh, with. You know, you uh, you take the disease and you treat it. So uh, we've got to have that attitude shift uh, amongst senior decision makers in our Department of Health and HSE uh, because they too judge uh, obese people and uh, they need uh, to, to change and they need to start doing it. And I, I, I think it's beginning to change. Uh, and I've seen um, a couple of recent meetings in the Department of Health and in the HSE where the penny seems to have dropped that actually uh, eat less, move more uh, is the recipe for preventing obesity. And it's the recipe for modest uh, weight loss mm -hmm. of maybe 5% of your starting body weight. But if you're living with uh, obesity and, you know, at the, uh, I'll, talk, I'll say the extreme end, uh, then uh, eat less, move more uh, is not what you need. Uh, that's like telling a uh, person who has lung cancer that your treatment is to stop smoking. Uh, your treatment for lung cancer is your treatment for lung cancer and the stop smoking is your prevention piece. But now uh, the financial hit that we're taking by not treating obesity has reached a point where I'm seeing uh, the mood change in the HSE and Department of Health. I think it's unfortunate that it's had to be a, a financial dawning uh, that has begun to change attitudes, but I don't care. And what other, we talk about other treatment options, bar, you know, you know, eat less, move more. So what other treatment options are we talking about? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there are, in the United States, there's uh, six different classes of medication available for treating obesity. Uh, in Europe, we have three uh, classes of medication. Um, the future uh, you know, we had one of the major pharmaceutical companies out presenting their kind of pipeline of treatment for obesity. And what we will have over the next uh, 15 to 20 years are medication that will uh, allow people to lose maybe 25% of their starting body weight, which is equivalent to surgery. I mean, surgery is, is if you like, the golden bullet treatment-wise. Um and there isn't any such thing as a kind of a magic bullet, really, because you have to work very hard in the run up to surgery. And when you lose weight after uh, obesity surgery, you have to work very hard to keep it off. Uh, but uh, we are now looking at a future where we'll have medication uh, that will work with changes in diet and lifestyle to deliver uh, results equivalent to surgery. And, and that's incredibly exciting. Uh, is that medication appetite suppressant or? It's a combination. So um, the, there's um, the majority of the historical medication uh, that has been available have been appetite suppressants. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been a few uh, stimulants uh, that really failed miserably. And, and the history of medication to treat obesity uh, is uh, checkered with, uh, you know, awful studies of horrendous drugs that made people really unwell uh, and had long term complications. So we're only now just arriving at a point where we have a combination of uh, appetite suppressants, um, also a medication that make you feel fuller, 
sooner after you eat. So um, your, your portion size is reduced. And some of those medication also uh, improve your metabolism. Mm -hmm. And if you improve metabolism uh, and you increase your energy burn a little uh, without going on, you know, something like speed that, you know, will just make you sick. Uh, but if you can just tweak metabolism uh, as, as nature uh, runs metabolism a little positively, then uh, you, you've got, kind of got the, the perfect medication. Um, one of the things that has really struck me over the, the last 15 years in particular is that as you get bigger, uh, your energy burn gets turned off. Wow. And uh, you, you get into this vicious cycle of uh, as you get big, you tend then to get bigger. And I was sitting down with people, uh, say, 20 years ago, and I'm back literally 20 years ago, I think almost today, uh, in the job I'm in. And I was sitting with people, and the calculation of their calorie intake for the day uh, to maintain their weight at, we'll say, 166 kilos uh, would be 5,000 kilocalories a day. And, and I know from talking to them uh, that they're eating nowhere near that. And, and uh, what is, uh, as the science improves and our understanding improves, I'm now able to sit down with that patient and say, look, we understand things much better now. Uh, we used to think that you were leaving here, pulling into McDonald's <laughs> and on the way home, and uh, because that's the only way you could stay at this size. We actually now understand that as you get bigger, you turn off your energy burn and that for you to lose weight, uh, you actually need to be eating maybe 13 or 1400 kilocalories. And for you to be weight stable, you might only be in around the 1800 kilocalories in a day. And that if you go over that, you're going to put weight on. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's really good that you're we're able to, to if you like, move the understanding on so that you can have a more empathetic, uh, less judgmental uh, conversation and then look at lifestyle and look at lifestyle in that context for that individual and say, right, what what change can you make? Uh, where, can, where can we start? Because as you know, the most important step is the first step. Of course. You mentioned there about 20 years experience uh, and, and, and the job that you're in. I want you to tell our listeners a little bit more about that. I know what you do, but um, I think our listeners will be fascinated to learn about that a little bit more. And also maybe what you've seen over the course of the last even five years or 10 years in terms of at the front line of, of obesity, that are people getting bigger? Is the rate of, of the supersized um, person coming into you? Have, are we seeing more of them? And in terms of you know, gastric bypasses and stuff like that. Is that more pop, more uh, popular is the wrong word, but more requested than ever before, maybe? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, when I qualified, uh, and I'm 30 years qualified, uh, I decided I wanted to do endocrinology, which is the study of hormones, and uh, went to London to work in a unit uh, which was interested in how the brain controls appetite. So that kind of got me into it, and I did. that's where I, what I did my research in. 
And when I came back to Dublin then in 99, there was no service for uh, people with obesity of any kind. Um, and I had been in the process of trying to set one up in London, uh, but then got a job back here, young baby, moved back. Uh, and then we uh, said that we set up a service here. So I attempted to set up an obesity service uh, in back in 1999 uh, it was difficult to get funding and it was the, the need for funding that got me initially going into the Department of Health uh, and at that time Micheál Martin was the Minister for Health into the tobacco and he was championing the smoking ban and it was in fairness very passionate about uh, lifestyle and, and health and he set up uh, an obesity task force uh, and, and uh, that reported in 2005 and the budget after that gave us funding to formally establish the obesity service in uh, Lachlan Town Hospital. That, was, that, must be, that must have been what, 20, no, 2010, 2017? No, no, no. So we, we got, uh, they gave a million, Brian Cam was the Minister for Finance, he gave a million in the budget that year. Uh, we got money to set up a service uh, in Dublin, in Galway and in Cork. Uh, Cork gave the money back, said we don't need an obesity service. No yep. way. Yeah. And really? Said, yeah, and, and, and said the, we said, look, you really need to set up an obesity service, and they put it into cardiology. Wow. Um, and and that was the attitude then, you know. That it's look their fault. Don't shouldn't need to be treating obesity, and the eat less, move more was just all you had to do. So anyway, fast forward, uh, you know, uh, now twenty nineteen, and you're looking at a, a better understanding of the problem. It's costing us more not to treat obesity. And uh, it is the one disease that we're just treating the complications of without treating the disease when there's a really good treatment for the disease of obesity. So uh, we're trying again. I'm with my HSE lead hat on. And I, I took on the HSE lead role uh, two years ago now. Uh, we have put money in or we've put bids into the government estimates process to get funding for uh, expanding our service in Dublin, uh, developing the service in Galway, and they, uh, Cork are now really keen to establish an obesity service, uh, as is one other uh, hospital group. So uh, there's now a much better appetite for treating the extreme end. Um, we absolutely have to continue to work on the prevention piece and what do you do with the people in the middle who are think they're just a little bit overweight but if you think you're just a little bit overweight you're actually in uh, you're, you're obese uh, in Irish society mm -hmm. today um, so uh, people still don't you know know their numbers and know what their numbers should be and uh, we, we need a different approach by GPs uh, that is uh, happening. GPs are now very engaged in uh, tracking weight from childhood through to adulthood. Controversial, but yeah, but important. Controversial, but essential. Um, and uh, GPs are much uh, better placed now to have the conversation about weight because of programs that highlight, uh, you know, the 
importance of the problem. So operation transformation. The number of GPs have told me that operation transformation has allowed them to raise the issue um, and has changed the landscape in, in that sense uh, has been, uh, you know, it's been very impressive. Uh, and the minute uh, it moved to having a dietitian, uh, you know, uh, physical activity, uh, psychology uh, and a medic, that's your full multidisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the access that Operation Transformation has given me to policymakers, you know, I've met the three ministers for health uh, through Operation Transformation. I've met the Taoiseach, I've met the Director General of the World Health Organization, uh, all through Operation Transformation. So it's given me uh, a very uh, big platform mm -hmm. uh, to, to try and, and give more visibility to the problem of obesity. It does make me wonder why progress has been so slow in, in getting to a point where I, I think we're just about to, but I have been at this point before where I think we're just about to get proper funding uh, and, and the estimates process results are revealed and obesity gets cut uh, at the final uh, negotiating stage. Um, UCD, uh, and I work in St. Vincent's uh, Hospital as well as Lachlanstown, and they're affiliated with, with uh, University College Dublin, but UCD has just appointed uh, a bariatric surgeon as professor of surgery uh, in the university, uh, full chair, uh, and th that's a... I think that's a really important moment because that's the university saying from a health policy point of view, a health strategy point of view, we think this is uh, a crucial area to have, uh, you know, our department of surgery uh, majoring in. And uh, Helen Heenan has been uh, appointed to that. And, and uh, I think it, uh, she is somebody you, you might consider down the line having a chat with because uh, she uh, you know is you know blazing a trail um, on, on the surgical side of managing obesity in this country she's done over 200 surgeries since she uh, took up her post mm -hmm. just about 18 months ago 200 yeah and we've never had activity like that you know and and we need to be doing more uh, you know, and, and Ireland does the least number of obesity operations of, of uh, any of the developed uh, world. So, and what's, what's the waiting list now? Well, the waiting list to come to our clinic uh, for, uh, if you like, the lifestyle intervention mm -hmm. and, and the lead into surgery for those who want it, uh, that's um, about three and a half years. 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 Uh, the waiting list for surgery is hard for me to be accurate about because Helen Hina has started to do so much, but it's certainly, I would think at this stage, about 18 months wow. uh, from the time you're told you need the operation. But you, you can't get access to the surgery. You've got to go through the lifestyle program first to, and lose some weight. Pre That's my understanding uh, of it. Yeah, well, no, I think we're taking our... Um, when you understand weight regulation better and how the body controls it, uh, the you must lose weight before you have an operation is very judgmental. Okay. Uh, so the body regulates its adipose tissue mass incredibly tightly. Uh, 
the body regulates its uh, red blood cell mass, its hemoglobin, incredibly tightly. So, I don't know, do you give blood? Yeah. Yeah, okay. You, you, I can't because I worked in the UK for a few years. But uh, you give blood and you know that eight weeks later, your blood count will be right back up mm -hmm. to exactly where it was. Right? And uh, you haven't done anything about that. Uh, we now know that when you lose weight, it's a similar threat. Your adipose tissue mass has been reduced, like your red cell mass. And your body makes every effort to bring that back up to exactly where it was. Right. And, and uh, you know, the other stores in the body, like your calcium stores and like, uh, you know, your body regulates those tightly. Uh, and you, you've, we, we've got to, number one, accept that that's a fact. If you look at all the weight uh, loss studies that have ever been done, uh, that's what happens. The uh, weight comes down uh, and then when you stop doing what you've been doing, mm -hmm. the weight goes back up again. Uh, so it's not a surprise. So you don't have to lose weight before you have the operation. You do have to change your lifestyle. You do have to show that you are capable of limiting your alcohol intake if alcohol is a small issue for you. You do have to show that you're capable of making good decisions around so your food choices. It is about yeah. commitment and it is about getting physically fit because you can get uh, physically fit uh, without losing weight mm -hmm. um, and then if you manage if you manage to get physically fit then a lot of the complications that come with obesity are, are minimized um, but in general uh, it's, it's, it's harder to get physically fit when you're living with extreme obesity Folks, you're listening to the Real Health Podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. Uh, this is the learning from Donald O'Shea episode. I'm going to uh, to retitle this because I'm just sitting here. It's like being in a private lecture uh, hall, listening to the advice that's coming through and the content that's coming through. So thank you so much for coming in and, and, and telling us all about it. Um, I want to pull it away from that towards advice now and different kind of sectors of where we're seeing issues. Certainly one of the things that I'm seeing with clients coming through younger and younger and younger, and we have a cutoff of generally 18 or 19 years of age before we work with anybody, but we're getting more requests than ever before to work with children, mm. which we're refusing because we just, I just think it's wrong. The family have to get, get healthier together. So we might work with the family and put family interventions in place. Um, in terms of children and children's health and children's obesity, mm. A, what are the issues that you're seeing or that you have seen? And B, how can we tackle them and how can we, how can we improve it? Um, so there, you know, if, if adult services for obesity are, uh, inadequate, uh, children's are absent pretty much. Uh, and, uh, that's something that has to change. Um, there are a small number of people who realize it has to change and, and the new children's hospital uh, is looking at, uh, putting in place services for childhood obesity um, and uh, that's essential what, what we're seeing with childhood obesity is a leveling off at about 25% of our children are uh, overweight or obese um, that leveling off is disguising a continued rise in the less well off sections of society and a fall in the 
better off, better educated sections in society. Um, and that degree of kind of socioeconomic separation, that's, uh, for me, that's uh, a huge threat into the future of health in Ireland because uh, you are growing health inequality uh, from the age of three. So 12% of the three-year-olds in the poorer sections of Irish society are, are obese. Uh, compared to 3% in the better off, better educated sections by the age of three. So you wind that forward, uh, that will track to adult obesity, it will track to the extreme end of adult obesity, and it will track to the extreme end of adult obesity in a group of individuals who are less likely to come forward for health care, less likely to participate in screening programs, uh, and uh, you've got a perfect storm of, uh, of of ill health in people who can't afford the treatments that are required. So we had Simon Harris and we met him in the Department of Health uh, not that long ago and we had a really interesting chat and very frank chat about health and some of the policies that he was bringing in such as the food and hospital policies and improving the yeah. food and hospitals and which he's rolled out and seems to be you know, the, the, the policies seem to be coming. What policies would you like to see? If I could give you a, you know, wish, wish list. a wish list of okay, I'd like to see X, Y, and Z. I think these are the most these could be the most impactful because the trends are there. Like by uh, twenty thirty, Ireland could be the fattest nation in Europe, eighty nine percent overweight. So the trends are coming down the line, and that's twenty thirty is only what eleven years away. It's not that far. Yeah. Um. What would you like to see? Um, I think rolled out. I, yeah no I think you've got to uh, look at the sugar uh, tax that's in as a policy minimum should the money from the sugar tax uh, go into health or is that or am I, am I uh, no I mean uh, the money uh, for from, raised from the sugar tax and indeed from the they restored VAT to its original in the hospitality sector mm -hmm. back up to um I think 13%, 13 of and a half, yeah. 13 and a half. Uh, that restoration, uh, there are two new monies coming into uh, the state coffers. Uh, the idea that that is not channeled in significant sums to prevention and treatment of obesity uh, is a massive lost opportunity. Um, and I, I'm just hoping will be um, reviewed reversed as a policy decision uh, there's a precedent for uh, I think the technical term is hypothecation of money um, uh, that's raised from one tax for a particular cause so I'm desperate that that would happen and I, I think that's something where people are going to need to you know ask their TDs you know everyone is suggesting we're going to have an election soon uh, you know uh, can we make it an issue, you know, put the money into psychopaths, make active commuting something that you can actually uh, do as mm -hmm. opposed to really we should have more active commuting. Um, so Okay, so sugar tax is one. Sugar tax is one. I, I think the minimum unit pricing for alcohol is, is another one uh, that's important. Uh, I, I think the... Um, policy you mentioned the healthy f the food policy for there's one recently launched for patients mm -hmm. nutrition standards for patients but there is going to be one launched after the summer which is around uh, the healthy food for staff and visitors okay uh, 
And I think that's uh, I think that's a really important policy because uh, it's a very good policy in evolution. It hasn't been uh, or I think it probably has been fully signed off. But I think any public sector uh, organization could take that policy and say, if this is what the HSE think staff and visitors to a hospital environment should be eating, well, then it should be the same in uh, schools. It should be the same mm -hmm. in prisons. I mean, I've had the opportunity to go into uh, a couple of the prisons recently where they're looking at making lifestyle improvements and, uh, you know, and that's uh, really positive, but it's absolutely necessary. Um, uh, so, so that's a policy that I would like to see resourced and rolled out to other public uh, sector areas because we have a massive public sector. So if we can get our public sector uh, right, uh, that would be a good, um, I won't quite say start point, but mm -hmm. it would be a, a, a good place to get to. I think the holy grail is prevention and uh, the project that I would be most passionate about in that regard is, is a project called the Healthy Ireland Demonstration Project uh, and we're running that with the Department of Health, the Department of Education, University of Limerick, uh, University College Dublin, the College of Physicians. There's a lot of big interested players in that but fundamentally that is introducing uh, an active school initiative uh, into all secondary schools over time. It's only at kind of feasibility stage at the moment. Uh, getting transition year students to champion that kind of uh, lifestyle change within the school uh, and have some sort of peer mentoring back to um, the first years and second years uh, because uh, 13 and 14 year olds will not listen to you mm. or me they will listen to a 15 year old saying actually do you know what uh, there's lots of ads on the telly for that but it's crap don't don't eat it don't drink it uh, that once from a 15 year old will stop the 12 year old in their tracks mm -hmm. uh, me maybe you'd have better look but you know it don't listen to us so you've got to get the education coming from with, within the students uh, and then uh, we're working with the Heart Foundation to develop a health literacy um, intervention. Uh, so you've got to do all of that in school. And uh, the outcome is uh, a little bit about physical activity in school, a little bit about uh, health literacy. But the real outcome uh, is reproductive health of those kids. So this is a project that will follow kids for 15 to 20 years and look at their reproductive health. And, and I used to say, I used to say pregnancy outcome mm -hmm. to the obstetrician and uh, she would get cross and she said, it's not pregnancy outcome, it's reproductive health. And I said, well, what, you know, what is <laughs> the difference? And uh, she said, well, reproductive health is having the number of children that you want at the time in your life that you want them. And for some couples, that is no children. For whatever reason, health reasons, they may be better off not to have a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So the idea that good reproductive health could 
you know, I was stupidly thinking a healthy pregnancy and yeah. a healthy baby at the end of the pregnancy that's breastfed. But uh, so, but it, it's more than that. So if you can arrive in 15 years time or 20 years time with healthier pregnancies into a food and physical activity environment that we have reshaped and reworked, uh, then Ireland as a small country uh, could have turned the obesity clock back 15, 20 years. Only a small country can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, only a country where I can sit down with the Department of Health and Department of Education and say, well, actually, look, uh, we should do this and we should do that. And, and uh, you, you could never do that in the UK. You could never do that in the US. But you could do it here. And if we did it here, we could be like the smoking ban. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could say, you know, people said the smoking ban could not be done. And, you know, within a couple of years of it been introduced here and everyone's saying, well, the world did not fall apart and everyone is loving it. Uh, it went pretty much global. That's an answer I wasn't expecting. The reproductive health as the holy grail. It makes logical perfect logical sense when you think about it it's and it's a it's a future goal in terms of the future of the country that if we can educate you better then that's where we end up which is fantastic yeah but the lens has to be that 15 20 years down the line not uh do something now that'll make things better next year that's yeah, not that's happening long term which is what it needs to be donald o'shea Thank you so, so much uh, for coming into the Real Health Podcast. Uh, the listeners who listen to me on a regular basis will know that it's probably the quietest episode I've ever done and the least I've ever talked because I sat here and absorbed the content that I've been waiting to sit down and have a chat for a very, very long time. So thank you so much for coming in. Folks, as ever, you know where we are. We're at Carl Henry PT on Twitter and on Instagram, uh, realhealth at independent.ie. And uh, we will be back next week with another fascinating episode of the podcast. I really, really hope you enjoyed that it's a little bit deeper than what we normally do but it's fascinating and it's an area of national interest that we need to sort out and no one better than the HSC's clinical lead on obesity to come in and chat us all about it. It's long fall and we'll see you next week. Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of the Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry.